0: Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are joyful this morning. And Lord, we know that joy that we experience is not dependent merely on our circumstances. In fact, some of us have actually come to church today in a time of great hardship and difficulty and perhaps suffering. And yet, because of what Christ has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection, We know that your love for us is secure. We know that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven and that our future is secure. And so, Lord, we stand here this morning with ample reason to praise you and to worship you and to rejoice in you. Lord, now as we spend time in your word and we conclude this great letter written to the Galatians, God, we pray that once again you would fan the flames of joy and desire in our hearts toward you, Lord, that you would continue to stir us up with faith and with love and with obedience. Lord, we ask you now to minister to your people, to instruct us, to change us for your glory and for our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, go ahead and be seated, please. And once again, good morning. So great to uh, see everyone here today and to be able to say hi to all of you and hear you guys singing together as a congregation worshiping the Lord at church. What a joy that always is. Well, as it turns out, one of the most impactful classes that I ever took while I was in school was an elective in junior high of all things. It was an eighth grade typing class. During that class, I learned to type really, really well. I got good at it. I could type really fast. I think I was up to something like 65, 70 words a minute at that point. I'm probably like a third of that now. No, I'm, I'm probably still 40, 45 words a minute, but I was able to type. And uh, the crazy thing is that I literally use that skill that I learned in eighth grade every single day of my professional life. I sit down and I do tons of writing and it's all done on a computer. And I'm personally so grateful for the foresight of my junior high to see that there was going to come a day in the future where every single professional and really every person in our society was going to sit down and work off a personal computer. Now, prior to the PC revolution, typing was a specialized skill. So most people couldn't type. Therefore, when a person in the professional world wanted something to be typed, It was commonplace for them to dictate that message to uh, somebody who would be able to produce it, a typist. And similarly, in the ancient world of the New Testament, writing itself, just the ability to sit and write things down was a specialized skill. Not everybody could do that. Most people couldn't. And so the Apostle Paul, keeping in step with the culture of his day, has been dictating the letter of Galatians, and he does this in his other letters as well, but he's been dictating this letter to a writer who's been recording it for him. But I don't know if you saw this in verse 11. The apostle Paul here in the conclusion basically reaches over and he just borrows the pen. Really, it was a quill at that point, but just kind of snags the pen out of the hand of this writer and says, hey, I'm going to take over from here. And he actually records the conclusion in his own hand. Here's what he writes, starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So again, Paul now, for specific reasons, is taking it upon himself to sort of sign off this final paragraph. Now, notice he says that he's writing with these large letters, and scholars are kind of they kind of debate about, well, what does he mean there? Why is he using large letters when he writes? Uh, One theory is that it could be that his eyesight is bad. We talked about this idea uh, earlier in this book, but that's not a terribly persuasive argument. Um, It could also be that the Apostle Paul was just not as skilled of a writer as the person who had been writing Galatians. And so that person could write really, really neatly in a much smaller font. And Paul wasn't so good, so he had to write in a larger font. But many commentators and myself see this as an ancient equivalent of typing in bold or in all caps, right? When somebody sends you a message in all caps, you know they're trying to really get a point across. Well, sometimes that's not necessarily the case. There is a little bit of a, I guess you could call it a generational right? It's in all caps. But generally speaking, we understand that when you put something in bold or when you put something in all caps, there's a point to that. And the point is that you're trying to emphasize what you are writing. And a lot of commentators think Paul now is kind of upping the font here in the conclusion of this letter because he wants to emphasize the things that he's about to write. He's trying to get the reader's attention. And so in this conclusion, Paul has something important to say, something urgent to say. And what it is is essentially this, that Paul in his conclusion is going to make one final appeal for the gospel. If you're writing notes this morning, that's the title of our sermon, A Final Gospel Appeal. But this conclusion is basically a summary of the main contours of Paul's arguments throughout the entire book of Galatians. He's kind of bringing it all together. And and the key question here in the conclusion is the same key question that we've been studying now for several months. And it's this, is the message of the gospel that we are saved through obedience to the law or that we are saved by God's grace? Let me say that again. Is the message of the gospel that we are saved by obeying the law or that we're saved by God's grace? The answer throughout has been, go ahead, I'll let you answer. We are saved by? God's grace. And so Paul is going to drive that point home one last time, thinking that you and I could be saved through obedience to the law. The first one is in verses 12 and 13, and it's the motive of the false teachers. Paul is going to get underneath uh, what these false teachers are saying, and he's going to reveal to us what's actually going on at the level of their heart, what their motive is in teaching that in order to be saved, you have to follow the law. Look at verse 12 again. Paul writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, which was the first step in a life of obedience to the law. He says, And, in only, or, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In these verses, Paul again is revealing to us what the motive of these false teachers in Galatia was. These people who are saying, you want to go to heaven? You want to be right with God? You want to belong to God's family? You need to obey the law. What was the motive? Well, it's actually twofold. On one hand, in verse 12, we learn that it was to avoid persecution. Do you see it in the verse there? They're they're preaching circumcision and the law so that they don't have to be persecuted. Now, as many of you know, the apostle Paul was heavily persecuted by the Jews for preaching the gospel of God's grace. As far as the Jews could tell, he was setting aside God's holy law. He was sort of um, diminishing God's law. Therefore, as zealous Jews, they tried to stop him at all costs, including physical violence. Let me just give you one snapshot of this. This is a tiny excerpt from his mission, chapter 14, verse 19. We read, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So the Jews, again, seeing the the apostle Paul's ministry as he's preaching a gospel of God's grace, they see that as a threat to themselves and to Judaism, and they actually get this crowd together, and they take up stones, and they they just pelt Paul with these stones, and they leave him for dead. They thought that they had killed him. The false teachers, on the other hand, were trying to avoid persecution at all costs, See, they accepted that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, meaning that he was God's appointed Savior. But they insisted that people needed to also come underneath the Jewish law in order to belong to the people of God. Thus the reference to circumcision. By maintaining the law, they could avoid persecution from their Jewish brethren. Basically, they could look to the Jews and they could say, hey, we're just making Jews out here. We're we're converting people to Judaism. They're, They're bringing their lives under the law of Moses, and therefore the Jews would have no issue with what these false teachers were doing. So that's the first motive here. They don't want to be persecuted. But we also see another motive that's related in verse 12, and it's they want to make a good showing. They want to make a good showing. Notice they weren't just trying to avoid looking bad to the Jews so that they wouldn't be persecuted. They were trying to look good in front of the Jews so they could be praised. Verse 13 says that they may boast in your flesh. In the same way that some Christians are wrongly motivated in their evangelism, trying to get people, to, trying to get people saved so that they can add another notch to their Bible, These false teachers in Galatia were trying to get one more Gentile circumcised so they could add one more foreskin to their credentials. Paul says, look, their motives were self-serving. He unpacked this more fully back in chapter 4 where he wrote this in Galatians 4.17. Paul says, look, they make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Their motive was to get the praises of people to look good in front of other people. And so listen, we should be dissuaded from thinking that we're saved by the law because the motives who are, of the people who are preaching this are so corrupt. Not only are their motives corrupt, though, but we see in verse 13 that they are full-fledged hypocrites. This is another reason why we shouldn't be persuaded by their teaching. We see the hypocrisy of the false teachers. He says this again in verse 13. He says, Even those who are circumcised, so these false teachers, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. In other words, he's saying, look, these false teachers who are saying, you want God's blessing, you want God to love you, you want eternal life, Okay, obey the law. That's what they're saying you need to do. They're not even obeying the law themselves. They're not living up to their own standards. And this is true of anyone who thinks that they can get to heaven based on their own goodness or their own righteous deeds. Sometimes I've talked to people who I'll ask them, how do you think somebody goes to heaven? And they'll say, well, it's about being a good person. they will say, well, what does it mean to be a good person? And they'll kind of start sketching their idea or understanding of morality a little bit. And I'll usually just kind of pause for a second. Then I'll say, do you live up to your own morality? And I've never had a person tell me, yeah, I do it perfectly. They always kind of back off a little bit and they kind of smile a little bit. And they say, well, well, no, but I think that God really cares about my sincerity. I'm trying to obey these rules. I'm trying to be a good person. The question, of course, is where in the world does sincerity actually work? Like, like if your goal in your life was to be a lawyer, and you take the bar exam and you fail, can can you just look and say, "But but I really want to be a lawyer, and I really studied hard. I gave it everything." Oh, okay. Well, then you can be a lawyer and practice law in California. That doesn't work. What about the spouse who's unfaithful to their spouse and they cheat on them and they look at their spouse and go, well, I really want to be faithful to you. I sincerely want to be a faithful spouse. How how far is that going to get you? Not very far. Not to mention you can be sincerely wrong. The false teachers who claim that the law was able to save you couldn't even obey the law themselves. This is a terrible strategy for saving yourself. In Galatians 5 3, Paul reminded us that every person who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you think you're going to earn God's favor by obeying the law, then you better get it right. You got to obey the whole thing. No mistakes. You got to have a perfect track record. Because if you don't, according to chapter 3, verse 10, You're in big trouble. Paul writes there, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, not some things, all things written in the book of the law and do them. So family. Because nobody can actually do it. You'll never be able to obey the law perfectly. Third and finally, and this is perhaps the most significant point of all, the law is not the way to being saved because the law is powerless to change anything. Look at verse 15. Paul writes there, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul has to conclude now. That whether a person is circumcised, i.e. obeying the law, or uncircumcised, i.e. not obeying the law, is actually irrelevant. It doesn't count for anything because it doesn't change anything. It cannot bring about a new creation, which according to Paul, is all that matters at the end of the day. The law can't produce that. More on that in a minute. So Paul devastates any reason the Galatians or anyone else for that matter might have for looking to a a system to save them. God's grace alone can save, period. And we see evidence of that here in these final verses of Galatians. First, I want us now to look at the messenger. I want us to look at Paul. Again, we saw the motives of these false teachers. They were corrupt. They were self-serving. But In verse 14, we now see Paul's motive in ministry. Here's what he says in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what was it that the false teachers were boasting in? What was it that the false teachers were exulting in, rejoicing in, taking pride in? Wasn't it how many Gentiles they could... See, circumcised. That's what they were about. That's where their joy was anchored. That's what they were going to show to God at the end of their lives and say, Look, Lord, here's what we've done with our lives. We brought all these people under the law. Well, contrast that with the Apostle Paul. Paul says, Look, I don't boast in anything, I don't boast in my own credentials, I don't boast in my accomplishments. I don't boast in my own goodness. I don't boast in the service that I've offered to God. I don't boast in anything, he says. Well, except this one thing. This one thing I do actually boast in as he stops and thinks about it, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Paul does not boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ is clearly the evidence of God's grace. Our natural propensity is to be like the false teachers, to look at all sorts of things in our lives and to boast in those things and take pride in those things and find our joy in those things. It's a work of God's grace when a person stops looking to those things as the boast of their life and starts looking to the cross of Jesus Christ as the sole boast of their entire life. Now, this statement by Paul brings up an important question for us. And the question is this, is it wrong then for a Christian to be proud of the things that they've accomplished in their life, and especially of the things that they've done for God? Is there something wrong with that? Like to look at your life and say, man, I'm proud of the things that are happening in my life, or to find joy, to rejoice in or exult in the things in your life? The answer to that is no. In fact, look back at verse 4 of chapter 6. Paul said, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. Or consider these other passages that Paul writes where he uses the same word Romans 5.3, not only that, he writes, but we rejoice, that's the same Greek word, in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So there in Romans, Paul says he can boast in suffering, so to speak. 2 Corinthians 12.9, he says, He says that God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul writes, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So there he's saying, I boast in my weaknesses. Finally, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul writes, for what is our Lord Jesus at his coming? He says, is it not you? So he boasted in or rejoiced in the church, other people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So again, the question is, is it wrong to be proud of the things that you've done in your life? or to rejoice in things like your family, or your health, or your ministry for the Lord? And again, the answer is no, on one condition. The answer is no, on one condition. If we see all of those things in our lives as blood-bought gifts of grace if we see all of those things in our lives as blood-bought gifts of grace. Let me give you an example. I rejoice in my wife and in my sons. I love them more than I can express to you. My heart bubbles up with joy, unspeakable as I see them or think of them or am with them. And there's nothing wrong with that because as often as i rejoice in them i find myself tracing the gift that i call erica and judah and jace and silas back to the giver of that gift namely god himself and i find myself rejoicing in him what do i mean by that well i realize that it's nothing short of a miracle that erica married me and you would agree with that if you just look at her And look at me, a miracle, God's grace, God's grace. Not only that, I know that it is a miracle. It's a gift of God's grace that she is as kind and lovely and godly as she is. She could have just as easily turned out to be a lunatic, (laughs) a complete crazy person. And I'm going, who did I marry? But it didn't turn out that way. She's an amazing, wonderful woman. That's God's grace to me. I also realize that it's a miracle. It is nothing short of God's grace that he's blessed me with three amazing sons. I know many wonderful people who are not afforded that same blessing. That is a gift of God's grace. And not only that I have three sons, but that they're as amazing as each one of them are. Friends, I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve that at all. In fact, according to the Bible, I don't deserve anything anything good. God God is the creator. God doesn't owe Daniel Hooper anything other than judgment. And the simple fact is that I deserve God's judgment because not only am I not God, not only does God not owe me anything good, but I'm also a sinner. I've also chosen many times over again in my life to actively rebel against God, to turn my back on God, to treat him as if he's insignificant or just optional to my life rather than honoring him for who he actually is, the creator and sustainer of all things. Therefore, all I actually deserve from God is judgment. So again, the fact that I have anything good in my life is purely the grace of God. It's a gift of God. So I need to look at all the things in my life that are good And I need to say, yes, I rejoice in these things. These things are amazing. I can be proud of my family. I can be proud of this church. I can be proud of so many different things and rejoice in those things and find joy in those things. But every time I do, I have got to trace that back to the giver of the gift and find my heart rejoicing in and boasting in the grace of God put on full display 2,000 years ago on a cross where my Savior bore my sin. That's the trick. That's the key. That's what it means to live a life that is boasting only in the cross of Jesus Christ. So the litmus test for us today is this. In whom or what do I boast in? We have to ask ourselves that. What do I exult in and rejoice in and take pride in? Is it what you've done? or what you're doing right now? Or is it what God has done and what God is doing? If you're a Christian here today, every good thing that you have in your life is a blood bought gift of grace. Everything, there are no exceptions. So maybe you're a person who's built a successful business or career Is your boast in how hardworking you are, how smart you are, how driven you are, how clever you are, or is your boast in God's grace to you? Recognizing that, sure, even though you might be hardworking, maybe you are more driven than the next person, maybe your IQ is a little bit higher, maybe you are more creative than the next girl, even if those things are true, do you recognize that even that is a gift of God's grace to you? that you didn't earn that so that your boast even in your successes is in the grace of God or maybe you've joined us this morning and you're a beauty queen or you're a physical specimen that everyone should marvel at a greek god chiseled in bronze do you rejoice in the fact that you have a detailed regiment of moisturizers and creams that you put on every night before you go to bed that you have an amazing diet and exercise routine? Or do you recognize that your body type and your beauty and your metabolism are things that are outside of your control? That beneath whatever beauty or physical stature that you have, there is a gift of God's grace. Do you not realize that you could have been in an accident a year ago that changed everything for you? Or you could come down with a sickness tomorrow that will change everything for you. It's a gift of God's grace. Everything is a gift of God's grace. Therefore, our boast, if we're being biblical, is in the cross of Christ alone. Next in verse 17, I want us to see the consistency of the Apostle Paul. He writes this. I love this. This is kind of like, verse 17 is kind of like... um, You know, when people get closer to the end of their life and sometimes they stop caring that much, oftentimes this is true. They just don't care what people think anymore. That's, that's kind of like where Paul's at. It's like, I am what I am and just deal with it. I'm happy with who I am. Look what he says in verse 17. It's like, from now on, let no one cause me trouble anymore. He's just like, leave me alone. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Why? Because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is the equivalent of what he says in Timothy, where he says, I fought the good fight. I finished my course. He's just like, look, from now on, just leave me alone. I've been beaten to a pulp over this thing before I've proven where my loyalty is. Whereas the false teachers were hypocrites who couldn't live up to their own expectations or their own standards, the apostle Paul was completely consistent. He said it was all about the cross of Christ and he made it all about the cross Christ. Of Christ. Through the cross, he was dead to the world, and the world was dead to him. And the proof that this was the case was a body that was racked by bruises and brokenness and scars from the years of persecution as he faithfully declared the gospel of God's grace for Paul it was not about this world it was not about security or comfort or pleasures in the here and now it was about a singular focus living for the glory of God through preaching the cross of Christ he was perfectly consistent in his drive throughout his life Again, a work of God's grace. Finally, we know that salvation is about God's grace because in verses 14 and 15, we see the power of the cross to change everything. The law couldn't change anything, but the cross changes everything. Let's read it one last time as we close. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The law is powerless to change you. Now, now granted, I'll, I'll give you this. The law can produce a little bit of behavior modification. Okay, you can hear the law and you can hear the threats of the law. Most often they're obeying the law and the house they're scared of the consequences and the punishments. And that's okay. That's a function of the law. The law at best can get behavior modification, but the law is powerless to change you at the core of who you are, which is the only place that it really counts. Only grace does that. Only grace can transform you at the core of who you are. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the new creation has begun. Sin and death, your greatest enemies, have been delivered a death blow at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And through faith, the people of God are themselves becoming a new creation. Here's Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Family, our new reality in Christ means that we are crucifying the flesh in the power of the Spirit. It means that we are no longer ruled by the systems or the values or the power structures of this present evil age. No, no, no. We are ruled by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the values of the kingdom of God. Something has fundamentally changed in us because of the work of Christ. By grace, we've become new creations. Therefore, Paul could say that through the cross of Christ, the world has, in effect, been crucified to him and he to the world. Yes, he still lived in the world. Yes, you and I still live in the world. But again, we're not being ruled by this world. We have a brand new allegiance. And through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're actually being enabled to live in light of that new allegiance. Here's how Paul puts it back in chapter 2, verse 20. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who turn back to the law or who turn aside to something else are turning away from God's grace, which is the only way forward into the glorious and just and equitable and lovely new creation that will be our eternal home. That's why Paul could write in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. All who follow this rule, he says, this rule of the gospel of God's grace are the true people of God. He calls us the Israel of God and are the recipients of God's peace and mercy and grace. And hasn't this been to actually belong to God's family? Who are the children of Abraham? This is what he's been asking and answering And what we've seen throughout this entire letter is that God's people are not merely the ethnic Jews or the Israelites. God's people are all of those who receive God's grace by placing their faith in God's son. And so, friend, I ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you placed your faith in God's one and only son? And if your answer to that question is, yes, I have you are a member of the people of God and nothing can ever change that. And if you haven't, then you do not belong to God's family and you are not assured of peace and mercy and grace. No, to be honest with you, friend, if you have not put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, then as I was saying about myself earlier, the only thing you should expect at the end of your life will be judgment From God, because like me, you are also a sinner. But it doesn't have to be that way. The scriptures say today is the day of salvation. And today you can receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. You can turn to him by forward. I hope you'll do that. Family, Paul's final gospel appeal in the book of Galatians is so strong. No other system of salvation matters, he says, because they cannot bring about the real change that we need, new creation. Only the cross of Christ can do that. And therefore, family, let us make our boast in the cross alone. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We thank you so much that you love us with an everlasting love. Many people question whether or not God loves them, but we need to look no further than the cross of Christ to see that you, in fact, love us more than we could ever imagine. That although we are sinners, although we did not honor you as our creator and as the sustainer of our lives, and instead we've rebelled against you many times and turned our backs on you. Although that is the case, your love compelled you to send your one and only son to this earth to become a man, to live a righteous life in our place, and then to willingly lay down his life on the cross and receive the just payment and penalty for our sins in his own body could be just and the justifier of those who put faith in Christ. God, we are amazed once again at your grace. Jesus, thank you for taking our place on the cross so that all of our sins could be forgiven. And Jesus, we thank you that you triumphed over death three days later. And through faith in you, we get to share in your resurrection. And we are the people of God. And we are a part of the new creation. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace today. God, help us to be a people who more and more every single day are finding that this world is crucified to us and we to it. That in the power of the Spirit, we would continue to align our hearts more and more with the values of your kingdom rather than this kingdom that is so quickly passing away. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be so different so joyful so peaceable so content that all those who are around us that do not know you jesus would be compelled by our witness and that we would see a wonderful harvest a massive harvest of souls through this church family in the weeks and months and years to come lord please do this for your glory